Okay, well, everybody knows pretty much what I'm going to say next, so I'll go ahead and do it. And that is, turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. And it is a, um, well, it's a pretty feature-packed Torah portion. I'll say that up front. Anyway, it's also in uh, Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. And as uh, they often do, it says, And Yehoah spoke unto Moshe, and here's what he said. So here come the words in red. And, of course, that also means that uh, the verse that begins the the Torah portion text is not where the name that we're going to recognize as the uh, the standard name for the Torah portion comes from, because it's in the next verse, verse 12, where it says, Ki Tisa, Ki Tisa et Rosh. Benai Yisrael. Well, let's parse that sentence for a second. Ki tisa. What does that mean? It literally means uh, when you take or carry or lift up at what? Lift, what are we going to lift up? The et tells us, the pointer to the direct object, lift up the rosh. Rosh, the head. So what's it saying? Lift up the head. When you do that, of the Benai Israel, well, the children of Israel, according to their number, well, wait a second. What does that really mean? Lift up the head is another way of saying when you take a count. So you lift up the head. When you take a census, if you will, here's how it's going to work. Every man will give a ransom for his nefesh. For um, uh, It's uh, translated as soul, but nefesh can mean life as well. So for his soul unto Yahuwah. When you number them uh, so that there is no plague among them, when you number them. Huh, okay. Now this is what they shall give. Everyone that passes among them that are numbered, half a shekel, the shekel of the sanctuary, that's 20 geras, half a shekel is an offering unto Yahuwah. So this would be silver, of course. Everyone that passes among them that are numbered or counted from age 20 on up shall give the offering of Yahuwah. Rich, they don't give more. The poor don't give less. This half shekel. And when they make the offering of Yahuwah to make atonement for your souls, your nefeshechem, plural. Then you shall take this atonement silver from the Benai Israel and appoint it for the service of the Ohel of meeting, the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the Benai Israel before Yahuwah. Here it is again. This must be important. To make atonement for your souls. And it continues and says, Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, and here's what he said. You shall also make a laver out of brass. The base thereof will be of brass, and this is to wash in. You put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and there you put water in it. And Moshe, I'm sorry, and Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and their feet uh, thereat when they go into the tent of meeting, so that they wash with water. And this is um, sounds to me like it might be important, so that they do not die, so they die not. Hmm. Or when they come near to the altar to minister to cause an offering made by fire uh, to smoke unto Yahuwah, they wash their hands and their feet again, so that they die not. This will be a statute forever to them even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. Then, moreover, Moshe spoke, uh, Yehoah spoke to Moshe, and he said, Take also unto you the chief spices of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, so this is a unit of weight, sweet cinnamon, half of that, 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, another, 250 shekels, of cassia, 500, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and olive oil, get yourself a hint of that, and you'll make it a holy anointing oil a perfume compounded after the art of the perfumers, it shall be a holy anointing oil. So the art of the perfumer and the art of other things we'll hear means that um, the people who are skilled in knowing how to do this have an understanding of how to take these things and make what we're talking about. 
Then you'll anoint therewith the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table, all the vessels, the menorah, all the vessels of that, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all of its vessels, the lava and the base, and set them apart, sanctify them so that they may be most kadosh, most set apart. And, oh, you think? There's that word again, kadesh. Kodeshim. So when you see the doubled word in Hebrew, that's where they get the most, or it's it's like holy, really holy. Um, the holy of holies is the Kadesh Kodeshim as well. So that whoever touches them may be set apart. And you'll anoint with these things Aaron and his sons to sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the office of Kohen, priest. And you shall speak unto the Benai Israel and say the following, This shall be a holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. So this stuff is set apart. What does that mean? Well, upon the flesh of man you don't pour it, nor shall you make anything like it. According to the composition thereof, it is set apart, holy, it is to be holy unto you. Now, when he says don't make anything like it, it sounds like he means that. And the next verse makes it, I think, even more clear. Whoever makes anything like it, compounds anything like it, or whoever puts it on a stranger, he shall be cut off from his people. Now, Yehoah then said to Moshe, Take unto yourself sweet spices, stacte, onicha, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each alike weight. So basically equal weights of these things. Make for this, this time, an incense a perfume after the art of the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy, and you shall beat some of it really fine. Put it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I'll meet with you there. It shall be unto you most set apart. And guess what? This incense likewise. When you make it, according to the composition thereof, you do not make any for yourselves. It is to be holy, set apart unto Yahuwah. Whoever does that and makes it unto anything like it, even just to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. Now we're going to get some indications about the the nature of these folks that are going to be the ones who who make all of these items. Yehu spoke to Moshe and he said, "Look, I have called by name Betzalel. Betzalel. Uh, well, we know the L, right? What that means? Uh, the Bet prefix Be means in the um, in something, and it turns out Betzalel is literally in the shadow of L." He's the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Ruach Elohim, spirit of Elohim, in wisdom, understanding, and in knowledge, all manner of workmanship. He has some real skills, and he is going to use these to devise skillful works, to work in gold, silver, brass, cutting of stones for setting them, the carving of wood, to work in all manner of workmanship. And behold, I got an appointment of a, um, an apprentice for him, or a, a, a uh, an assistant, a Holiav the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I put wisdom that they may make all of the things that I have commanded you. So Oholiav is literally, remember, Ohel is the word for tent. So this is in the tent of Av, or the father. The tent of meeting. The Ark of the Testament, he's going to make all these things. Uh, the Ark cover that's on it, and all the furniture in the tent, all the table, its vessels, the menorah with all of its vessels, the altar of incense, burnt offering, the lava and its base, all the plated garments, the holy set-apart garments for Aaron and his, uh, the son, his priests, uh, Aaron the priest and his sons, also priests, to minister in that office, and the anointing oil, the incense of sweet spices for the holy place. All of these things that I have commanded you, they will be the ones who will do them. And goes on and it says, Yehuda then spoke to Moshe and he says, now, oh, wait, wait a second. 
This is kind of interesting. There's only about uh, eight verses or so left until we get to the end of the chapter. And uh, if you don't have this one marked in your scriptures, folks, I would encourage you get a get a highlighter and make some really um, important highlights around what we're going to see. This is probably one of the foremost examples in the whole book of one of my favorite structures. This is called a chiasm in English. And what does chiasm mean? Well, we're going to find out. But in Hebrew, it's a little more obvious. It's called an atbash. And that stands for Aleph Tav. What's that? Aleph Tav, first and last letters, right? Aleph, first letter. Tav, last letter. Well, how about Beit Sheen? That's the second to first and second to last. So what it's saying here is the first and the last, second to first, second to last. It's showing us literally a picture in the language of nested brackets or nested parentheses. So what I will suggest is, as we go through this, pick these things out, kind of get the picture of what we're talking about. And um, this was before the time. Nowadays, we have things that you'll find in what are called markup languages in English, uh, generalized markup languages, uh, hypertext markup languages that you'll see for the web. What these things are, um, they'll call them tags, right? you got a tag, and usually a tag says beginning this and end of this. So if you want to make something bold, there's an, a beginning bold tag and an end bold tag. And you put anything inside there, and it's bold. And you can put these tags around text, and it makes them kind of flash and, and uh, bold or italics or whatever you want to do. Well, the chiasm in Hebrew and in the uh, language here serves the, serm, the same purpose. So what we have is, I like to think of it as a, a flashing red symbol in your scriptures. And that's why this is important. So here we go. I'll read it, and we'll we'll make sure we understand the structure of it. Um, Yahuwah spoke to Moshe. Here's what he said. Speak you also unto the Benai Israel. Say the following. Verily, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Well, we've heard that before. Uh, Why is this one different? Keep my Sabbaths. Because this is a sign, an oat, between me and you and throughout your generations. So that you may know that Ani Yahuwah Elohechem, who sanctifies you, who sets you apart. Now, what did, okay, let's, let's read what it says next, and then we'll read the rest and see if it doesn't kind of leap off the page. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore. Well, he just finished telling us that. Keep the Sabbath, because it is holy unto you. Everyone that profanes it shall surely be put to death. That sounds kind of serious. For anyone who does any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Cut off is the same same penalty we just saw when they uh, make things they're not supposed to make, like the anointing oil or the incense. And and then it says this, six days... Well, wait a second. We know this, too. We've heard this before. Six days shall work be done. Seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy, set apart unto Yahuwah, Kadosh. Whoever does any work upon the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. That's the second time he's told us that there's a death penalty associated with this. Now, let's look at it. Huh. Notice? He just said death. Then it tells us about six days, which we've seen before. Then it says uh, the penalty is death. Therefore, says the Benai Israel, we just heard the Benai Israel again, they shall keep the Sabbath, we've heard that, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations. It is a perpetual covenant, uh, we've heard that. It is a sign, an oat. Wait a minute, didn't we just see the word oat? Yeah, right up above. It is a sign between me and you, the Benai Israel, throughout your generations. He just says it again. In verse 17, it's a sign between me and the Benai Israel forever. 
For in six days you will made heaven and earth. On the seventh day he ceased from his work and he rested. So what do we got? Do, do you see it? Is it kind of clear? I mark them with an A and a B and a C and a D. Because what we have here is not just an, an open parentheses and an open bracket and another open parentheses and another open bracket, but we've got the closing set of four brackets and parentheses, if you will, as well. So the, the first part, keep my Sabbath. It's an oath, a sign, throughout your generations, and then it's, well, it carries a death penalty. And then there's something that's in the middle here. I'm going to contend that's the thing that's in the tag that is so important that it's being set off with four sets of nested brackets in Scripture. And then we get what? There's a death penalty associated with it. There's the first of the closed brackets or parentheses. And then it says, this is a sign. Oh, that's another one. There's the second closed parentheses. A sign forever throughout your generations. Yep, there's another one. For in six days, Yahuwah made heaven and earth. And, um, huh. Do you see it? So the question, of course, is what is so important that he not only repeats it, he, he puts the nested parentheses in there and in the middle... Something that is very, very important is being enclosed by all of this so that it's like a flashing red tag. What is it? Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of holy, solemn rest, holy unto Yahuwah. It's not like we haven't heard this before. It's in that Ten Commandments thing that, of course, the um, the whore church likes to say, well, that's all done away with. How, how is it done away with when he just finished putting it not only in there twice, but saying it carries a death penalty and enclosing it in nested brackets and parentheses so that it's like a flashing red symbol? Again, I, I don't think I can emphasize this too strongly because he does. He makes this point, he emphasizes it, he puts brackets around it, and he makes it a flashing red tag, essentially. And he even says it carries a death penalty. This has got to be something that is really, really important to him for all of the text and all of the special bracketry that is around it. Okay, that's the end of chapter 31. It says this, And he, Yahuwah, gave unto Moshe, when he done speaking all these things upon Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of Elohim. This sounds like an interesting thing. Uh, and by the way, I mentioned this is kind of one of those chock full of, uh, of stuff, Torah portions, and arguably we're going to see one of the most tragic events next in all of human history. And it's in chapter 32. It goes like this. It says, When the people saw that Moshe didn't come down right away, he delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered, and this is the first use of some of these words here, they gathered themselves together. Hmm... The word there is kahal. Now, somebody mentioned the word church. Uh, that's a Greek ecclesia, and it's cirque, and uh, I think there's some negative connotations. But guess what? This also seems to have some negative connotations. The word assembly or gathering, uh, is uh, the root word is kahal here. And this is the first time we see this in Scripture. And isn't it interesting? The first time we see it in Scripture, it does not seem to be that they're gathering themselves together for a noble purpose. They went up to Aaron, and they said to him, Oh, come on up here. You make us Elohim, plural. Make us gods. Now, Rashi makes a, a big point. Uh, and he says, not just plural. They wanted many gods. One just wasn't going to cut it. Make us gods. They'll go before us. As for this fellow Moshe, the man that brought us up out of the land of Mitzrayim, well, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron said unto them, 
did Aaron argue? Uh, this is interesting. We're going to come back to this. It just says, break off some gold rings, the things that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring all that to me. What? He just, like that, he just says, bring your, bring your gold. Children, the people of Israel, they all broke off their golden rings, which were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron. And he received it from their hand. And he fashioned it with a graving tool. This is the first use of, of this particular word we're going to see as well here. And they made something out of it. They made a graven, they made a molten calf. Now, the word in Hebrew is egel. And they said, this is your Elohim, your God, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What's going on here? Well, we know what's going on, right? We, we already know the story. This is a really important story. It's, it's got all kinds of negative connotations. It's funny to me that the whore church today still talks about the golden calf. They don't recognize they got their golden bunnies and their golden Easter eggs and their chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs and all these other things, too. Um, there's not a whole lot of room to complain when you've got various things that they say, hey, this is your God, O Israel. Then Aaron saw all this. He built an altar in front of this thing, and Aaron made a proclamation. Now, here is, is he trying to, uh, um, you know, split the difference? He said, tomorrow we'll have a feast to Yahuwah. Lay Yahuwah. Well, at least he got the right name in here. But the wrong symbolism and a lot of things that it turns out he's not going to be real wild about. So you can't argue that it's a great feast to him because, well, we're going to find out what he thinks about it. They got up early in the morning. They offered burnt offerings. They brought shalomim peace offerings. People sat down to eat and to drink. And they rose up to, uh-oh, we recognize this word, yitzach, that, that root word that means laughter. They rose up to lach zachach, to laugh. The uh, English translation I'm looking at says to make merry, cavort, uh, do a little whoopee. Uh, whatever they're doing, folks, well, I think the context is going to make it clear. might be funny to them, might be humorous, might be laughter, maybe it's uh, mockery. Maybe that's what they're doing. But whatever it is, it doesn't go over real well. Meanwhile, it says Yahuwah spoke to Moshe. Where is he? He's up on the mountain. He said, he said to Moshe, go on, get yourself down, because those people, the ones that you... Brought up out of the land of Mitzrayim, they have dealt corruptly. This is the same word that was used right before the flood. Know what happened then, right? This is the very same word that he's using to describe the people who are dealing this way now that just got sanded down and wiped out with the flood uh, a few um, hundred years before. They have turned aside quickly. Didn't take long. Out of the way which I commanded them, they made themselves this Egal Maseka. A, um, a graven, a molten calf. They've worshipped it. They've sacrificed unto it. And they've said, and here he's quoting them, This is your God, your El, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then Yahuwah said to Moshe, I've seen this people. I've seen them before. Behold, they are a stiff-necked people. Now, this word here is interesting, too. It's a um, kashah. And let's see, this would be Eref. And Eref, uh, so this, this refers to the back of the neck or the nape of the neck. So, yeah, that's uh, stiff-necked is uh, not a bad way to render. This is what he's talking about. So, just leave me alone, he says. I'm kind of P.O.'d, you get the impression. Uh, leave me alone that I might rack, my, my wrath might rax, wax hot against them. Leave me alone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really work up a, a fever here. So that I might consume them. I'll make of you. 
a great nation. So he's telling Moshe, just leave me alone. I'm going to just basically burn you-know-what out of all those folks, and I'll make of you a great nation, Moshe. Now, Rashi has a comment on here, as you might expect, and I think it's a really fascinating one. And he says, look, guess what? One thing that Moses is not going to do, he is not going to leave Yahuwah alone. Because what does he do if, if, uh, if he, in fact, leaves him alone? He consumes them with his hot, fiery wrath. So Moshe done leave alone, and if he had, they would have died. Moshe then besought Yahuwah, his Elohim, and he said, Lord, Adon, why? And I noticed that is, um, this is not the word um, Madua that we would often hear that's, uh, you know, why? What, what, what's the problem here? No, this is to what end? So it's a, it's a different Hebrew word. So it's to what end, really? Are you going to let your wrath rack so hot against your people? The people that, notice how he's correcting the creator of the universe? The people that you brought up forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Now, when I stop and think about this, and, and admittedly, um, Moshe is a special individual. And I think he probably deserves a lot of the credit that he gets because if you think about what he is doing here, he has just shown what the, uh, what the Hebrew language calls chutzpah to the creator of the universe. He doesn't leave him alone. He's just been told, leave me alone. And furthermore, he then says, to what end are you doing this? He's asking a question of a creator who is angry enough to kill every single one of those people. Where, therefore, wherefore, should the Egyptians and the people of Mitzrayim, why would they speak and say, you know what, uh, this, this God brought evil against these folks. That's why he did this, to slay them there in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth. He is literally bargaining. Uh, this is a little bit like what we saw with Abraham. But he is bargaining with the Creator. Turn from your fierce wrath, he says, and repent of this evil against your people. And here he does something that I think is vital to understand. It is at the heart of uh, one of the things we need to know about prayer and how to pray and how to beseech him and to seek his face. He reminds yod heh vav of his very own promises of his word, which is about the most important thing that can be done. Remember, he says, the Hebrew word there is zakar. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. How's that for reminding him of a promise? You said unto them, I'll multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land which I have spoken of, I'll give it to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. So he is reminding them, uh, Yahuwah, of arguably one of the most important promises in all of the book. And it says, Yahuwah, now I don't like the English runner here, he didn't repent, he basically turned back from what he said he would do, this evil to his people. So he heard Moshe um, beseech him. Moshe turned, he went down from the mountain, and he had those two tablets of testimony in his hand, tables that were written literally on both sides, one side and on the other they were written, and they were the work of Elohim. The writing was the writing of Elohim graven upon the tablets. I mean, what, what he's saying here is, these were some amazing things created by the hand of the one true living God. Moshe's got both of them with him. Isn't it a tragedy what's fixing to happen? 
what's already happened. Yahuwah, uh, Yahushua, rather, Joshua, he heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He says to Moshe, as he's coming down the mountain, there's a noise of war in the camp. There's a mob here. And he said, is it not the voice of them that shout for mastery? Neither it is, is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. It's the noise of singing that I do hear. Huh. Came to pass, as soon as he came nigh into the camp, he saw the Egel, the calf, he saw the dancing, and Mose, he gets pissed off. Now, folks, there's a, there's a polite way to put it, and it doesn't quite cut it. Moses is angry as all get out. Okay, he is pissed. There's the word. His anger waxed hot. He took the tablets that were created with the very finger of Elohim and smashed them on the ground, broke them beneath the mount. He has got to be some kind of pissed to do that. He took that egel, that calf, which they had made, and he burned it with fire. He ground it into powder, and he strewed it upon the water. Now, let's pause. Now, I've uh, talked about this a lot. As you know, uh, I am a, a big proponent of understanding certain references in Scripture that get repeated. One of them is this idea of the remedy for the jealous husband. And it's described in Numbers chapter 5. And um, it's also called the Sota, the woman whose husband thinks she may have committed adultery. How's he going to find out? Answer, he has this process that he goes through. And while this isn't identical... If you look at it, and by the way, the process hasn't even been outlined yet, at least not chronologically as far as we know. It hasn't been written down for us. But Moshe is fixing to do something that sounds a lot like it. Uh, you know, as Mark Twain would say, it, it doesn't repeat exactly, but it rhymes. What does he do? He, he burns the calf with fire. Now, if you think about a golden calf, normally you'd burn it. What does it do? It melts. So something chemically, physically is happening that's different with this thing, too. I've always been kind of fascinated by this. Um, He ground it to powder. So rather than melting and dealing with that, he grinds it to powder. Then he does what? Well, this is exactly like what we see in the process in Numbers 5. He strews it upon the water. He makes folks drink it. He made the Benai Israel drink of this water. What's it called in various places? Well, the cup of the wrath of, of the water, the water that makes bitter the water of judgment, there's a lot of references to it. You know, this is what uh, Yeshua says, I believe and and uh, understand. We see it there on Gethsemane. If possible, let this cup pass for me. Same cup. And if you think about it, it's the same damned issue. The same damnable abomination of rebellion to the one true Elohim. It is a sin that carries a capital crime. What does he do? He grinds it up turns it to powder, strews it in the water, makes folks drink. Moshe then says to Aaron, what did this people do? What, 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 who are they to you? What did they do that you brought such a great sin upon them? Yeah, what did they, they tie you down and torture you with ants and hot pokers? Aaron said, no, I'm sorry, don't let the anger of my Lord wax, wax hot. You know these folks, they're set on evil. So they said unto me, Make us a God, which will go before us. Because as for this Moses, this man that uh, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, well, we don't know what's become of him. And I said to him, All right, you got some gold, bring it on down here. So they broke it off, they gave it to me. I cast it into the fire, and shazam, out comes this calf. And I've always read that, and I thought, Who are we kidding? Right? I mean, I just, I got all the gold, I just threw it in the fire, and out comes this calf. Do we believe that? Now, on the other hand, is Aaron lying? 
Is he um, is he prevaricating? You you gotta you gotta wonder what is really going on here. I, I read the story and and I don't see a um, a lot of uh, objection on Moses or Aaron's part. Uh, you know, there's lots of speculation. You read the midrash, you'll see all kinds of things. One of the things that typically tends to happen is the rabbis they like to excuse the uh, the high priest. They like to excuse uh, bad behavior on the part of um, you know high-profile biblical characters. We don't want to necessarily say Moses or Aaron are capable of doing anything wrong. But when you look at this, it does seem a bit like maybe Aaron could have been, uh, he could have put up more of a fight. Maybe they will suggest, maybe he was afraid of getting killed by this mob. Okay, who knows? Is that a rationale for doing it? But this is probably one of the more astounding lines in the whole Bible. I threw all this stuff in the fire and out comes this calf. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, By the way, Deuteronomy uh, suggests in uh, chapter 9 that, um, remember here, I will let my wrath wax hot and I'll make a great nation out of you. The implication, in other words, and I think this is probably a reasonable implication, y'all would have killed Aaron too. Sure shooting. He was a dead man walking. So Moshe saw that the people had broken loose. Um, and by the way, the, the word here is, is kind of interesting. Uh, the, the, the word is uh, para, and it has an implication of a pudenda, in other words, or nakedness. They were uncovered, they were exposed. They're basically having what sounds like, with a reference to laughter, uh, an orgy even. Uh, do we know exactly what's going on? Am I am I saying uh, that we can picture precisely? Well, no. You know, if you saw the Ten Commandments, that wasn't quite that graphic, but it may very well have been. The people were broken loose, though. Aaron had let them loose for a derision among their enemies. So there's no doubt about it that the Hebrew, at least, implies uh, a nakedness. Now, nakedness can just mean exposed, all their wickedness exposed as well. So, admittedly, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but what we do know is the implications. Their nakedness was exposed one way or another, and it was offensive to the Creator to the point where He intended to kill every single one of them. So, Moshe then stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, this sounds like an important um, historic division, whoever is on the side of Yahuwah, come on down. You come unto me. Who did? We're told, the sons of Levi, all of the sons of Levi, gathered themselves unto him. Now, I can't help but think, now, it doesn't tell us this explicitly. We do know that Aaron and Moshe himself are descendants of the tribe of Levi. And, of course, therefore, all of the Kohanim. Now, not all um, not all of the sons of Levi are Kohanim, but all the sons of Aaron are. Uh, we're going to find out, as you know, there are other there are other sons of sons of Levi. But in this case, all of them, all of the sons of Levi, all of Moshe's uh, cousins and uh, their uh, their second cousins, they all came. He tells them the following: Thus says Yahuwah, Elohim of Israel, get your sword, get your sword, put it on your thigh, go to and throw throughout the camp, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay what? Slay every single man, his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. Go out and start whacking. Well, this is some tough stuff. Obviously, there are some real, real uh, guilty people here. Now, what's interesting is, and we're going to take this back to the numbers issue, how do they know? Did they kill every single person? But if it was a... um, 
a brother, a companion, a neighbor, they got whacked. Well, let's see how it plays out. The sons of Levites said, did. They did according to the word of Moshe, and there fell that day of the people about 3,000 men. Did they kill women too? Perhaps. We're not told explicitly. 3,000 men. That's a lot of people, a lot of bloodshed. Now, is that 300,000? Is it 2.5 million or 3 million? No. It's a small fraction still of those that were there, of this mixed multitude. But 3,000 dead men is a lot of a lot of bloodshed. The question, of course, arises. How'd they know? Right? How, how did they know? How do, why did they spare some and not others? How did they know which were the men who were guilty of literally idolatry before Yahuwah and deserving of death and got it right there on the spot at the mouth of the sword? Hmm. Well, I think we have a hint. Again, this is uh, what you might call markology. This is me connecting the dots. You don't have to connect the dots the same way. But when I see this process that looks so much like Numbers chapter 5, and the uh, how do we know who is guilty of adultery, uh, idolatry, the parallel is clear. Answer, what happened when a woman who was guilty of having committed adultery drank this water that goes into the stomach and causes bitterness? Her thigh rotted, her belly swelled. That's how they knew the miracle of the um, the test that those that that was a wife that was guilty of adultery and arguably deserving of death. I um, I realize it's a bit of a stretch, but I can't help but think what was it that these Levites were seeing? People writhing on the ground with uh, rotted thighs and swollen bellies, run them through. I, I'll put it this way. I, again, Scripture is not explicit, but we certainly have all of the dots there with enough uh, information to connect them that I don't think it's too much of a leap to suggest somehow or another the Levites knew what they were looking for, and they found 3,000 of them. Moshe then said, Consecrate yourselves today to Yahuwah. Every man now has been against his son and against his brother, so that he, Yah, might bestow upon you this day a blessing. You're alive, that's a blessing. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moshe said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now the ones that were worst are dead. But some of them, uh, all of them, that were there allowed it to happen. You sinned a great sin. Now I'll go up unto Yahuwah. Peradventure I'll be able to make atonement for that sin. Moshe then returned to Yahuwah and he said, Oh, this people, they have done it wrong. They have, they have sinned a great sin. They made themselves an El, a god of gold. And the word here, uh, Zahav. Now, if you'll forgive their sin, if not, just blot me out, I pray you, from that book of which you have written. So he is literally offering himself up in their place. Interesting. Yehud then said unto Moshe, Whoever sinned against me, him, that is the one that I will blot out of my book. Now you go, lead the people into the place which I have spoken unto you. Behold, my Malach, my angel, my messenger, shall go before you. Now, at this point, I can't help but think there's so much in this portion, right? Malach, messenger, angel. Uh, could be the Ruach. Maybe he's talking about the, the pillar of fire. But there is something about this that's unique and kind of interesting in context. They wanted an intermediary. They wanted a symbol that they could see. This is your God, O Israel. What do they got? They have a Malach, a messenger, that they will see. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. 
And Yahuwah, it says, smote the people because they had made the calf, which Aaron made. It's interesting. They made the calf, which Aaron made. He ain't letting Aaron off the hook for this one either. Now, it says, Yahuwah then spoke unto Moshe and said, Depart, get out of here. Go on up, you and the people that you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swore, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Yaakov. Notice, yep, you asked me, you reminded me, and I'm pointing it out to you. Saying unto your seed, will I give it? And I will send that promised Malak, that messenger, before you. And I'll drive out all those folks that I promised, the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, and as the late um, wonderful Brad Scott used to say, uh, and the Mosquito Bites. Well, a a land flowing with milk and honey. But I'm not going to go up in the midst of you. What? I will not go up in the midst of you, because you are. He said this when Moshe was on the mountain. You're a stiff-necked people. Lest I just plain get bent out of shape and consume you in the way. When the, and so, so what is he saying here? I'm sending a messenger so that, you know, just in case I don't consume you along the way. That ought to at least kind of uh, get them to sit up and take notice. People heard these evil tidings. They mourned. And no man put on any ornaments. Okay, those gold things. Well, I'm going to leave that in the, uh, in the tent there. Then Yahuwah said to Moshe, Say unto the Benai Israel, You are, in fact, just what I've been telling you. This is the third time we've seen it in this portion. You're a stiff-necked people. If I go up into the midst of you for one moment, if I go up in there, I'll consume you. So now, therefore, put off those ornaments, the ones you used to uh, to make, you know, not the very ones, but some of them that are like that, to make golden calves, so that I may know what to do unto you. And the Benai Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Not going to wear that gold anymore. So Moshe then used to take the tent and... Um, pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone that sought Yahuwah went out under the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. It came to pass then when Moshe went out uh, under the tent, all the people rose up, they stood, every man at his tent door, and they looked after Moshe until he was gone into the tent. So you can kind of picture this huge camp, hundreds of thousands of people, all gathered around. Moshe is now going to walk to the outside of the camp. It's probably a fairly long ways. They all stood up, every man at the door of his tent, and they watched. They looked after Moshe till he had gone into the tent. Now it came to pass, it says, that when Moshe entered the tent, the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tent, and Yahuwah spoke with Moshe. So when all the people saw the pillar of cloud stand at the door of the tent, they all rose up and they worshipped, every man at his tent door. And Yahuwah spoke unto Moshe, face to face, as a man would speak unto his friend. And he would then return into the camp. Uh, But his minister Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, did not depart out of the tent. So he stayed there. Moshe then said unto Yahuwah, See, you say unto me, Bring up this people, and you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you've also found grace in my sight. So, uh, here's what I'm going to ask. If I, in fact, have, I pray you, found grace in your sight, show me now your ways, that I might know you. To the end, that I might find grace in your sight. Okay, if I have, show me that. And consider that this nation is, in fact, your people. There's a little bit of that chutzpah again. You didn't kill them. There has been some major comeuppance here. Show me your ways, and um, to the end that I might find grace in your sight, and consider, in other words, understand, 
that this nation, this uh, mixed multitude, is in fact your people. And the response, Yahuwah said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then he, Moses, said unto him, If your presence doesn't go with me, don't bother. Don't carry us up from here. For wherein now shall it be known that I have found grace in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in that you go with us? So that we're distinguished, I and all the people, from all the other people that are on the face of the earth? So then Yahuwah said unto Moshe, I'll do this thing. I'll do what you have asked. For you have, in fact, found grace in my sight. I know you by name. Response, show me pre, I pray you, show me please, I pray, your glory. And he said the following, I will therefore make all of my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of Yahuwah before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is the essence of a sovereign Lord, folks. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And he said, you can't see my face, though, because no man can see my face and live. Then Yahuwah said, Behold, there's a place by me. You stand upon the rock. When it come, It'll come to pass that when my glory passes by you, I'll put you right there in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And I'll take away my hand, and you'll see my back. But my face you will not see. Now, as I read this, everybody's heard the story, right? Hiding Moshe in the cleft of the rock. Of course, there are other references that I can't help but think when I see this about covering us with his hand, uh, that that's a promise that we have, too, that there will come a time when we're going to need to be protected. And a covering of uh, his hand or uh, his protection, some kind of a covering, has got to be vitally important. And here we saw uh, probably the first use of that in Scripture. Next chapter, this is the final chapter in the Torah portion this week. Now, Yahuwah says to Moshe, uh, go ahead, get yourself two more tablets of stone, just like the first ones. I'm going to write again on those tables the words which were in the first ones, the ones you broke. Be ready by the morning. Come up to the morning uh, to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No man comes up with you, nor let any man be seen throughout anywhere close to the mountain, uh, nor let the flocks or herds feed before that mountain. So Moshe did. He hewed two more tablets of stone like the first ones. He rose up early in the morning. He went up onto Mount Sinai, as Yehud commanded him, took in his hand those two tablets of stone, and Yehud ascended in the clouds, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of Yehuah. And Yehuah passed by before him and proclaimed, Yehuah, Yehuah Elohecha, El, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy unto the thousandth generation, forgiving torlessness, iniquity, and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear or forgive, uh, clear the guilty, and visiting the iniquity, the torlessness of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. So you'll hear this referred to as the 13 attributes of mercy. Moshe then made haste, he bowed his head towards the earth, and he worshipped. And he said, If I have now found grace in your sight, O Yahuwah, let Yahuwah, I pray you, go in the midst of us. Because you know what? You're right. This is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. What does he say? Behold, I make a Brit, a covenant. 
This is not the first, it is not the last time that we see a covenant made by the Creator. Before all your people I'll do marvels, such as have not been wrought on all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among which you are shall see the work of Yahuwah that I'm about to do with you. It is tremendous. Observe thou that which I am commanding you this day. Shamar. There's that word. Hear, obey, do. I'm driving out before you. The Amorite, the Hittite, the the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. So take heed to yourself that you do not cut. That word there is um, uh, karat. Cut. Do not cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Now, remember the uh, the story from the time of the Gibeonites. Joshua is going to run afoul of this. Here is the reference. Don't do it. And he, in fact, ended up doing it. And it caused problems to this day. It still caused problems. So don't do not do this. Don't cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land you go into. Because, guess what? That will be a snare in the midst of you. Instead, break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, cut down their ashram, their, their poles, because you shall bow down to no other L. For Yahuwah, his name is Yahuwah Kana. So here's one of the other names of the Creator, Yahuwah Kana. His name is Jealous. He is an El Kana, a jealous Elohim. Why? Lest you make a covenant, do exactly what he just said don't do, cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and then go astray after their gods and sacrifice unto their gods, and they call you and you eat of their sacrifice, you take of their daughters unto your sons, you take their daughters to go astray after their gods, and you may, they'll make your sons go astray after those fake gods. Do this no more. Don't make any more Elohims that are Maseka. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Unleavened Bread. Hmm. By the way, out of the blue, this comes. This is the feast that's coming up, folks. This is the next spring feast. It is the time that we saw the, um, uh, well, the Catholic word, of course, is the Passion. And uh, they get the dates wrong and they get so much about it wrong. But ultimately, this is this thing that he says you will keep. Seven days of eating unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month of Abib, because in the month of Abib, you came out of Egypt. Everything that opens the womb, it's mine. Of all the cattle, you'll sanctify the males, the firstlings of the ox and the sheep. If the firstling of an ass, you redeem with a lamb. If you won't redeem it, then you'll break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and no one shall appear before me empty. So we would nowadays say empty-handed. Oh, wait a second. Didn't we just read this part too? Why is he repeating this? Huh. Oh, well. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Plowing time and in harvest time. Even if you think it's plow time and harvest time, hey, I know we're busy in the spring. Got to get the crops in. I don't care. My Sabbath, you rest. Is it becoming clear? And by the way, of course, this isn't even the first time in this Torah portion that we've seen this. Last time it was set off with the great big flashing HTML tags. Here it is, after he is repeating the things that are important. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, even the first fruits of the wheat harvest, the Feast of End Gathering at the turn of the year. So these are the uh, the Feasts of Ascension, the three that all the men would come up to, uh, to Jerusalem. That's what he says. Three times in the year, all your males appear before Yahuwah, El, Elohim of Israel. 
Because I'm going to cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders, nor shall any man covet your land when you go up to appear before Yahuwah. So here's what he's saying. All right, look, I understand. Guys are going to be afraid. They're going to say, hey, look, I'm going to leave my wives and my kids and my animals all alone here, and I'm going to go up to Jerusalem or wherever it is he's going to put his name. At this point, we didn't know. Uh, and, and you expect me to just leave and, and leave, and everybody's going to know that our homes, our farms, everything's undefended? What does he say? You don't have to worry about that. When you leave, because I've commanded you to go, no man is going to covet your land when you go appear before me. Three times in the year. You will not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Pesach be left until the morning. The choicest first fruits of your land you bring unto the house of Yehuel, and you shall not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. Again, this is, of course, where we've probably heard it. This is where the rabbinic um, sages get this claim that you don't mix, um, you don't make a cheeseburger. Don't mix milk and meat, put them in the same refrigerator, or have them at the same meal. Uh, again, I have a problem with that because I don't think it's as clear as they would say it, and they claim this is it. Don't see the kid in its mother's milk. Um, all right. I mean, I know that this is where they get it, but admittedly, it's a little bit of a stretch. And and the only other thing I will note is, uh, well, there's a lot we could add about this, but um, there are certainly indications that this might have been a pagan practice, and that's why he is rejecting it. Don't know that for sure. Just that's what it says. Don't see the kid in its mother's milk. So don't do that. Whether that has to do with cheeseburgers or not, well, we'll see. Or we'll maybe see. You then said to Moshe, write these words. After the tenor of these words, which I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. I have cut a brit with you. And he was there. Moshe is up on the mountain again. With Yahuwah, 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat bread, nor did he drink water. And he wrote upon the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten Deborim. And it came to pass when Moshe came down from the mountain with those two tablets of the testimony in his hand. When he came down from that mount, he didn't know, but it was true, the skin of his face sent forth beams. Beams. Uh, the word here is uh, Quran. Trouble is, this is the first time the word is used in Scripture. So we're not exactly sure. Whatever it is, this is the definition that we're going to see going forward of this thing. Uh, is it beams? Is it shown? Uh, some people say maybe he grew horns out of his head. You know, there's all kinds of, of ways of saying since we, we don't know explicitly what that word means, other than whatever it was, Moshe had it, and this was happening, uh, and he didn't recognize it, but they saw it when they talked with him. So when Aaron and all of his, the Benai Israel saw Moshe, behold, the skin of his face sent forth beams. The same word there again. And they were afraid to come near him. I guess I can kind of understand that. Moshe called unto them. Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. And Moshe spoke to them. And afterwards all the Benai Israel came up. They came nigh. And he gave them in commandment all the Yahuwah had spoken with him, this time in Mount Sinai. And when Moshe had done speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. And Moshe went in before Yahuwah, though, that he might speak with him. He took off that veil. Until he came out. And when he came out, he spoke unto the Benai Israel, and he told them what he had been commanded. And after that, the children of Israel saw the face of Moshe, that the skin of Moses' face sent forth these beams. Moshe put the veil back on his face until he went in again to speak with him. And with that, the Torah portion ends. And everybody's got the same question I do. Uh, and we don't hear any reference to this anymore. i got to wonder... 
Did Moshe wear this veil over his face for 40 years? Interestingly, we're not told. But we're not also told that it went away or that he didn't. So um, I guess the answer is um, there's there's another one of those small mysteries. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. All right, well, I'll say good morning, folks. Boker Tov, Shabbat Shalom, welcome back. And let's talk about uh, one of those um, Torah parshot that is uh, just uh, chock full of stuff. As a matter of fact, arguably one of the uh, the biggest turning points, perhaps one of the most um, important turning points in uh, in all of human history. Uh, certainly we saw a, um, a major event. This is a, um, in a lot of respects, it's a tragedy. But on the other hand, it also is one of those fundamental things that sets up uh, the rest of the book from that point forward, it's uh, it's not the only one like that. Uh, Garden of Eden was one, but uh, this is certainly another one that's, uh, well, way up there towards the top of the list. And um, as I thought about how I wanted to approach the, the specific lessons and with so much in here, what do we pick out and what do we take a look at, I couldn't help but think that there are really a couple of themes that I'm just going to lay out up front. Um, so let me do a bit of a recap with some special emphasis, if you will. And um, starting with where the Torah portion begins, in um, in verse uh, 20 and 21 of chapter 30, we see this reference to the uh, the laver, where it's gonna, they're going to make this bronze laver, and it says Aaron and his sons, the Kohen, uh, the Kohanim, and the Kohen Gadol, they're going to go wash their hands and feet before they go into the uh, to the holy place. So that they, uh, this is kind of a right interesting phraseology, so that they die not when they come near the altar to minister, to cause the offerings to be made before Yahuwah. And then it says it again. So we got this twice. They will wash their hands and their feet so that they die not. So you got to, I don't know, maybe maybe my, my, your mileage may vary, but I come away with this with, with kind of a scratching head no it's not it's not all that unclear something really important is being said here and it's a matter of life and death right so that they die not ought to get your attention there's something here that you say we, we got to pay attention to this and it's important well at least it's important to them now as we we're going to find out there are some other things in here that they should have been paying attention to as well uh, I'm going to refer to much of this by a legal terminology you may have heard. This is a terminology that you'll hear in the common law courts. Back when we had a court of law in the United States, you heard things like this. Um, either somebody knew or should have known. Right before they took out an axe and, and, and chopped somebody to pieces, they knew or should have known that was a problem. That was wrong. There are a lot of things where the, uh, the response is, you knew or should have known. You break into somebody's house at the night and you start to, uh, to, to steal their stuff and maybe um, rape their kids or kill their kids or take their kids away and somebody comes at you and kills you, you probably could have said you knew or should have known that that might happen when you broke down somebody's door in the middle of the night and started doing stuff that you knew or should have known you should not have done. So I guess another statement that I can't help but think, and this came up in some discussion last night, uh, you look at this situation and um, I guess what uh, I'm always going to suggest is there are certainly parallels, things we need to take away for today, right? The corollary is you got a whole bunch of folks that whether they uh, knew or should have known, they were ultimately jonesing for judgment. They were, they were looking for something, and they, they seem to have gotten it. 
And um, arguably, they didn't have any reason to really be surprised when it all comes down. Now, with um, with that, uh, let me make a couple of other observations. Like I said, we'll do a, a quick um, um, recap with special emphasis on some of the Torah portion elements. Certainly one of them, and I spent some time on this last night, I think it's vital. It is not the only place in Scripture. It's one of the most flashing red warnings, however, about this particular topic. It's something that's uh, that's outlined before the giving of the Deborine, the Ten Commandments. It's outlined in the Ten Commandments. Uh, we talked about it here just a few weeks ago. And now it appears in the middle of uh, one of the most prominent At-Bashim in Scripture. A, a chiasm is the English term for it. It is a set of words that are repeated and that serve as brackets. So you have kind of an open parent and a closed parent, right? I, ho- I hope everybody knows what an atbash is at this point, or a chiasm. Well, we got this massive one at the end of chapter 31. And it says, You, Moshe, speak to the children of Israel and tell them the following, You shall keep my Sabbaths. Gee, that's a new one, right? Never heard that before. Uh, it is a sign between me and you forever throughout your generations, so that you may know Ki and Yahuwah. And then it says it again. Right smack in the very center of the open and closed brackets. You shall keep my Sabbaths. We've got a, a penalty of death, too, that surrounds the, the complete center of this. Anyone who does any work on my Sabbath, they'll be cut off from his people. They will surely be put to death. And then it says in the middle, six days shall work be done. Yeah, this sounds like something right out of the Ten Commandments, right? The ones that are just fixing to get broken here in a, in a few minutes as we read the rest of this Parsha. On the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest set apart wholly to Yahuwah. Whoever does any work on that day, here comes the bracket, shall surely be put to death. So we get the opening and the closing brackets, and essentially these parentheses, this this uh, HTML tag, ancient HTML tag in Scripture, has these signs, keep my Sabbath, it's forever, it's throughout your generations, it's a sign between me and you, there's a penalty associated with it, which is death, and in the middle, Sabbath, you shall keep. Um, kind of like, so that they do not die. And isn't that exactly what was emphasized here? In other words, is there something here that he's trying to make as clear, as utterly, undeniably bright, flashing, flashing red light clear as it could possibly be that's important? And then how does the chapter end? And he gave to Moses, to Moses when he was done speaking these things at Mount Sinai, he gave him these two tablets of the testimony. Fingers of the very living creator himself wrote on them. That's pretty dramatic, too. Well, then we get to chapter 32, right? Here comes the uh, the uh, the turning point, the crux of the story. People saw that Moshe didn't come on down when they thought he would. So they did something for the very first time. The first time we see this word in Scripture here, the root word is kahal, and it has to do with assembling or gathering together. They gathered themselves together unto Aaron. So isn't it ironic? The first time we see a gathering together, it's not for the right reasons. It's ultimately for the wrong reason. They became a kahal, uh, maybe you could say a mob in this case, and they said, hey, make us a god that go before us. And actually it's not a god, even though some English renderings say that. This one here I've got it scratched out in. Make us um, Elohim, plural. They use the plural form. Make us gods. And we think about a singular golden calf, but hey, any will do, right? they got a whole bunch of them here. And we don't, want to happen. We don't know what happened to Moshe. Now, 
this is this is kind of fascinating, and this is really the place where I wanted to spend some time kind of thinking. Here comes the thought experiment, because I'm going to ask some questions about people then and people now. How do we react to things? Uh, what are we going to see that looks like it could be parallels? And I can't help but think, in the crux of one of these turning point stories in all of Scripture, is something that is equally vital to take a look at, understand, and ponder today. Poor old Aaron. He's what? He's the Cohen Gadol. He's the equivalent of, oh, dare I say this? No, it's a, it's a, um, it's a blasphemy against Aaron. But he's like the Pope of the day, right? No, not Pope Satan, at least not yet. Huh. Yeah, are we already starting to see that there are some parallels here? Anyway, he is some high religious official, a faith leader. Nowadays, the whore priest would say, he's kind of like the Fauci, maybe, of his time. Or the uh, Klaus Schwab. Are, are we starting to see that there are some real contrasts as well? I guess that's part of what I'm wanting to suggest here. But here's the thing that bugs me. I, uh, am I bad-mouthing Aaron? Well, Scripture seems to bad-mouth Aaron. We're going to see a couple of those things in here. I'm not excusing what is, uh, in fact, poor behavior. And um, are we going to see Aaron when we eventually meet up together? I suspect so. He was forgiven. But on the other hand, he does take some uh, some fair and reasoned and deserved criticism in this story. So these folks come and they assemble themselves against him. This this kahal forms. Is Aaron afraid? Is he worried the mob's going to kill him? Is he basically saying, "I just better go along to get along"? I got to get my 501c3 tax deduction here. I need to make sure that I uh, that I uh, keep my my Gulfstream four. Oh no, those are modern variants. Maybe Aaron just wanted to to, to survive until dinner. Isn't it funny? He's just been told he better wash in this bronze lava so that he die not. And now what's he afraid of? Not dying at the hands of Elohim. He's afraid of dying at the hands of this mob. So, how does he argue with them? How much do we see in Scripture? Now, I'm not know, we don't know exactly what transpired, right? We don't have the whole conversation. So maybe he said, well, are you guys sure you want to do this? Maybe he tried to talk them down. Maybe he didn't. I think if he had, Scripture might have reported it. But again... It doesn't. We don't know what was said. What we do know is what was said and recorded. He said to them, after what looks like no argument, first thing out of his words that are recorded for us is, break off those golden rings in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring me all that gold. Bring me that stuff. Does that sound like an argument? Does that sound like y'all shouldn't be doing this? Well, again, no, just bring me the gold. He received it at their hand. And he fashioned it with a graving tool. He made that graven molten calf, that graven image. And he said, well, this doesn't sound like the kind of thing that a true man of Elohim would say. This is your El. This is your God, O Israel, which brought you up. Which? Not who. Which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I'm, I'm speechless, Right? Did did Aaron know, or should he have known, this ain't your God, O Israel? You got the wrong damn God here? This is a fake? This is something I just made with a graving tool? Does that even cross his mind? Later on, we know what he says, right, I'll put all the gold in the fire, and shazam, out comes this calf. I didn't do nothing. Just standing there, and there it was. Are we believing this? That's a question I'm going to ask today several times, too. Are we believing this? Now, it's in Scripture. So you betcha, I am believing it. I believe that he said that. Was he accurately reporting? Maybe. Again, I don't know. I wasn't there. But I do know this. He knew or should have known better. 
He knew or should have known this wasn't your real God. Then he said, hey, tomorrow will be a feast to Yahuwah. Do you think he was telling the truth there? Was he lying? Was he ignorant? Did he know or should have known that this is not a feast to Yahuwah? He just finished giving him the big flashing atbash and said, my Sabbaths, mine, these are mine. This is a covenant between me and you throughout your generations forever. It carries a death penalty. Yeah, says Aaron, tomorrow will be a feast to Yahuwah with this fake God. Yeah. They rose up more early in the morning. They brought all their good stuff. They sat down. They made whoopee. They had a little orgy there. They did who knows what, but we can guess. And all of this stuff happened. And then Yahuwah, right, immediately speaks to Moshe. And he says, get on down there. Those people, your folks, those people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt, they have already gone corrupt on us. They turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. Sounds like Yah's thinking, hmm, they're without excuse. They've worshipped, they've sacrificed unto it. He reports correctly what has been said. This is your God, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I've seen them. They're stiff-necked folks. Leave me alone. I'm going to whack and kill every damned one of them. Every single one of them, by the way. The sages note, that includes Aaron, too. At this point, Aaron is toast. And so are all of them. And I'll take them, consume them, and I'll make out of you, Moshe, a great nation. By the way, that still meets the requirement. That's why I think while, while Moshe's argument here is a good one, and it's a, a good indication of how we should pray, notice that if, in fact, the Creator does choose to kill them all and create from Moshe a, um, a people unto him, he has still honored his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hasn't he? He has still brought forth through Abraham, through his seed, through that line, through the tribe of Judah. He has done exactly what he said he was going to do. He hasn't lied at all. So Moshe makes an argument. It's a good argument, but you know what, folks? It's not an unassailable argument, and that's kind of something we ought to remember here, too. Now, what's the whole point of all of this? This is the part that I think is fascinating, and again, it's where I like to just kind of... Uh, you know, sit back, have a little bit of midrash, kick off our shoes, and ask ourselves, what is really going on, and, and what are we really being shown here? Because we have a tendency to venerate, especially the high priest, the first high priest of all, the Kohen Gadol, Aaron, through him and through his sons, all of these these people. Uh, he went in, and he and later, as it turns out, he served Yah. Is it possible he could make a mistake? Well, sure, we know that. Not saying that people don't make mistakes, that he's not human, that he doesn't make an error. Uh, did he lie when he said, well, he lied when he said that tomorrow will be a face to Yahuwah. That is not true, and he should have known it. Did he know it? I don't know, but I know he should have known it. And Yah knows he should have known it. What do we make of Aaron? All right, I'm going to ask some questions now, and I think we're going to have to talk about them later because there are going to be some parallels. Remember, Mark Twain had it right. Uh, we may see things in history that don't necessarily repeat exactly. Same thing for prophecy, same thing for scriptural parallels, but they rhyme. There's going to be some rhymes, and there's going to be some things I'm going to suggest are very different today than with this golden calf incident. But it's helpful at least to recognize some of the um, some of the things that were made clear to us, and that we're even, it would seem, forgiven, and uh, how do we react to that? Okay, so we've got, we've got the incident, we've got um, Aaron's culpability. By the way, one last thing, let me just conclude the, the uh, chapter 32 summary of this. 
says in verse 35 that um, whoever sinned against me, this is Yah talking to Moshe, I'm going to blot him out of the book. We see that, in fact, the Levites come forward and they whack, they kill, they slay. Blood flows 3,000 people on that day. And uh, there is the idea of the... um, the cup and the water of bitterness, and how do they recognize those people? But nevertheless, there's 3,000 that are dead. And Yah says to Moshe, whoever sinned against me, him I will blot out of my book. Is he talking about folks that are still animated corpses at this point or not? Now, lead them. I'm going to send an angel, my messenger, before you, because if I was there with you, they might not survive the trip. All right. And then it says, Yahuwah smote the people, because they made the calf. Notice the dual culpability here. They made the calf which Aaron made. Nobody is off the hook. The scripture clearly says Aaron made that damn calf. Right here, verse 35. They made the calf, yeah, which Aaron made. He is not innocent. And I guess there's a uh, there's a really large message there. The, uh, the portion ends, and then we're going to go back and talk about some of the other... Um, Really fascinating elements of this. And I'm skipping over some important things, too. The part about if I found grace in your sight and hiding him in the cleft of the rock and his face that was uh, glowing or shining with these things that are translated into English as beams. It's a word that appears this time in Hebrew uh, in the Bible for the very first time. So whatever that word means, it's whatever Moses had. Okay, He goes and he makes two more tablets of stone, takes them up on the mountain, and Yah again writes on them. And then we get this. Okay, After the 13 attributes of mercy, he says, Take heed to yourself. I'm going to drive all these folks out from before you. The Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. Take heed, therefore, that you do not cut a covenant, a Brit, with any, emphasis there, with any of the inhabitants of the land that you're going into, lest that be a snare in the midst of you. Now, we know that Joshua failed that lesson, and it was, in fact, exactly what he said, a snare. Why? Because you will bow down to no other god, he says, but the implication of the converse is clear, too. You make this thing, you make this covenant, you'll end up doing that. That's what I'm warning you against. Because what you're dealing with here is Elkanah. Elkanah. His name is Jealous. Kanah. It's one of the attributes, one of the names, and he does not want any other L before him. It seems like that rings a bell, too. We've we've read that somewhere in one of those Deborim, right? And again, he repeats the reason. Lest you make a covenant, a Brit, with any of the inhabitants of the land and go astray after their gods, sacrifice unto their gods, and you eat of their sacrifice, and you take of your sons and daughters and vice versa, and they all go astray after these fake gods. What are you supposed to do instead? Yeah, break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, hew down, cut down their asherim. These are active, um, in fact, emphatic words. I don't want anything to do with these damned idols, pillars, asherim, and poles, and the crap that they use to worship these fake gods. Is it clear? By the way, I think that includes bunnies and eggs and Christmas trees, folks, just in case there's any doubt. He doesn't like crap that is, oh, tomorrow we'll have a feast to Yah. We'll say he was born on this day. We'll say that his sacrifice is going to represent some um, fertility goddess. We'll dye some eggs in the blood of children. Isn't that great? He's got to love it. We'll make a feast to Yah. 
The hell you will. He is not clear. Oh, yeah, he is. He didn't leave any doubt about it. They should have known, or they knew. We knew, or should have known. We are without excuse. It's not like we don't have the word written here in front of us. We have the examples of history. Yeah, we've got a bunch of whores that arguably are nowhere fit to even tie the shoelaces of an Aaron that have been teaching people a lot worse stuff than this. Little pagan gods here and there. We've got entire religions that are based on nothing except things that are um, stuff he says not to do. Most of the rituals, most of the, oh, is, is it that? Well, you know what they say. doesn't have to be 100%. You can just mix a little bit of the clean with the unclean. What's the result? Yeah, it's all unclean. There are example after example on that score, too. Make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land or with their gods is pretty clear. Elkanah, he is a jealous god. Now, let's, um, let's pause there. I think, I, I hope that at least is a, is a brief summary of most of the elements that are uh, particularly relevant today. And so what I'm going to do, now I'm going to, I'm going to warn um, before I start into this, I'm going, to, I'm going to say some words today, folks, because I'm probably going to get a little worked up, because it, te- it tends to work me up a bit here. You may hear a potty mouth word, and I hope you're not offended. Well, let's put it this way. If you are offended, you're not nearly as offended as the God of the Bible was when they made a golden calf and when they're doing the kind of crap that they're doing to him today. Okay? So a few words here and there are nothing compared to what they did and what the whore church is still doing to um, piss him off. He is a jealous L. So what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting if we look at the world today, and we're going we're gonna to take just a, a brief tour of some of the things in recent, very recent current events, and ask ourselves, have we gone well beyond a golden calf? I mean, a golden calf, right? We could say today we got uh, golden AIs. We got silicon-based gods that talk and walk, and they can they can rewrite history for you. They can do a better job than George Orwell's Ministry of Truth did. They can rewrite his feasts. They can get rid of them. They can replace them. They've been doing all of that, but now they got AIs that'll do it better. Hell, they'll even make up stories. They'll rewrite the Bible, and don't think they're not doing it. And that people like uh, Noah Harari haven't already started work on it. They got it planned. They got it laid out. So what are we dealing with today? What are we dealing with today? Not merely a golden calf. Something that makes the golden calf look kind of tame by comparison. Matter of fact, I guess I could say what we're dealing with today is a whole lot of stuff that comes out of the rear end of a bunch of things that aren't golden calves at all. So ponder that for a second because we're going to come back to it. Now with that, I want to point to just a few things that... um, I will suggest, and, and this is one of those things where the whore church tends to say, oh, oh, no, no, you know, what we're doing is not, what we're doing is not paganism. What we're doing is not uh, idolatry. No, what we're doing is not nearly as bad as that golden calf thing. Oh, really? Let me ask. Aaron was presented with an option, or, or was he? Make us this golden calf or die. Well, we're not told. He may have thought that. We're not told. Again, what we hear is, come on. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moshe. Um, make us a golden calf. And what does he say? All right, bring me some gold. That's all that is recorded for us. What does the whore church say? Pretty much the same thing. Bring me some gold. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. I'll do it. Bring me your 501c3. You want some golden calves? Hell, I'll go a lot further than that. We got golden Christmas trees, golden eggs, golden bunnies. We got you name it. 
We got all kinds of stuff. We'll change the days. We will, uh, we'll get you a get out of hell free card. Catholic Church for centuries. I guess they still do. They sold indulgences, right? You want to commit murder? You want to have a little adultery? You want to have a little boy there behind the altar, Mr. Priest? Here, buy an indulgence. Have at it. Is this disgusting? You bet it is. Can we talk about it? Well, we're not supposed to because it would, Im- it would implicate the whore church and the whoring that's been going on that kind of makes Moses look, um, or, or Aaron look downright innocent by comparison. This week alone, I've got three stories here, and I want to just point this, this stuff out. Um, and, and this is just a sample, but these are admittedly some of the, some of the worst of late. There is a, rhymes with which starts with B, in New York. Masquerading as Attorney General, a Soros plant. Letitia James. Okay, they just finished committing an outright communist theft. They said, how dare this guy run for president? If we can't kill him, and we've been trying, and we can't convict him for bogus crap, well, we'll make something up. What are we going to do? We're going to just steal his business. We'll steal his buildings. We'll find him more money than most people can imagine in a million, you know, a bunch of lifetimes. Let's say a third, maybe half a billion dollars by the time we keep charging interest. We'll try to make sure that we prattle about democracy. We'll put a wooden stake in that particular golden calf, too. This week, she has sued a food manufacturer, a meat packer, for daring to run afoul of the great God climate change and the great God science. The bullshit kind of science. The kind of science that doesn't have anything to do with the way God made the universe, that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that the sun is the primary climate driver. No, it's cow farts. It's beef. Why? Well, because you people who exhale the dreaded carbon dioxide, you need this to live, and we don't want you to have food. So what are we talking about here? They are trying to sue this um, beef packer because of their, quote, ill-gotten gains from false sustainability claims. How dare they run afoul of the great God climate change, man-made climate change. The uh, Biden fewer read from his crib sheets this week, and he said, uh, anybody that believes, that doesn't believe the BS that we're shoveling down your throats about climate change is, and I quote, a Neanderthal. Isn't that clever? I, I can't help but wonder, why don't they sue somebody uh, like a Colgate Palmolive because they're dissing the Tooth Fairy? How about somebody that's dissing Santa Claus? Or some other completely made-up bunch of crap that's masquerading as science? Ah, you know, I, how about this one? Two guys can have a baby. Folks, we have so much bullshit. Pardon my French, but... We gotta call it what it is. This makes the golden calf look really tame by comparison. Two guys can have a baby. I don't care what the God of the Bible says. And climate change is created by you driving an SUV. No, it's not by, uh, uh, Leo or anybody else flying to Gulfstream 4. Or by the Obama fewer or others jetting around the planet in their, in their, uh, uh, highfalutin jets and, and with their air conditioning stuff that you're not allowed to have and they got little boys and little girls. None of that matters. No, you can't have air conditioning. You can't have natural gas to heat your home. You can't have food, by the way, either. If you're a good little slave, we might let you have some worms. Something that the Bible says isn't food anyway. It is so transparent. It is so evil. It is so utterly, that word again, so utterly bullshit. 
And the, the reason why they want to do it is so transparent. No, it's not even tomorrow we're having a feast to Yah. It's tomorrow you die because you're not fit to live. Because you aren't the right color, the right religion, you don't worship at the right altar, you aren't one of us, and you don't get any food, you don't get any gas, you don't get to travel, you don't get nothing. And we're going to tell you it's all in the name of the great gods that we serve. The high priest, that's why you got to take your poison poke. How much of this stuff are people going to put up with? I, okay, let's go back, and I ask the question. Aaron, hey, make us a golden calf. Does he argue? No. Well, how about this? Fauci says, put on your mask, you stupid little slave, you. Rebreathe your own carbon dioxide. And we're going to tell you carbon dioxide is bad for you. It turns out that we're going to make you rebreathe it. That will teach you how bad it is because your body can't reabsorb it. Ha <laughs> ha. Aren't we clever? By the way, you're, you're going to rebreathe some of your own effluence and maybe it will make you sick, but that's the point. We want you to take the poison poke, too. And if we have something that will cure you, like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, we're going to lie to you about that. You can't have that. Because our great God and our high priest Fauci says, you're not allowed to know the truth. As for climate change and the other BS, we're going to hide the data, just like we hid the data about the deaths associated with the Zyklon B. We're not going to give you the real climate data. We're going to feed you stuff and tell you that it's getting hotter when, in fact, the real issue, you're not going to have any food because the climate is cooling off and we're going to have longer winters and shorter growing seasons, but we're not going to tell you that. There's your science. On every front, this kind of stuff is... Uh, that's why I just I basically said it. I'm going to pull off the stops today. Folks, Aaron should have called bullshit, Right? Seriously, I, I'd have had a lot more respect for Aaron if they said, make us a golden calf, and he says, the hell I will. You know you're not supposed to do that. You all are going to die for doing that. Aaron didn't have the guts to do that. Am I bad-mouthing Aaron? Well, what does Scripture say? It's a calf that Aaron made. He bears culpability for it because he didn't say no. Out came this calf. Do we say no? Or do we sit by silently? While we say, oh, you know, we're going to pretend that this climate bull isn't climate bull. And we know better. Or we knew or should have known better. Okay, so Letitia James is suing a meatpacking company because they aren't, um, they have no viable plan to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions. What a crock. Are they suing Pfizer for killing millions of people? Are they suing Monsatan for having polluted the entire corn supply of the United States and turned it into GMO'd Franken-food? No. Are they suing uh, Oxitec for releasing billions of mosquitoes into uh, genetically modified Franken-mosquitoes into Brazil that were supposed to reduce the dengue fever, but in fact, Shazam! Out came this calf! Have multiplied it by a factor of four? And now they're out in the wild? And the scientists are saying, this couldn't happen. This shouldn't happen. We can't put the genie back in the bottle, though they're out. It'll be a hundred generations before we know what happens here. And they're still continuing to do it. Is she suing any of those companies? Hell no. Because you know what they all have in common? They're killing people. They're worshiping at the great golden calf that says, we need more dead people. We want a whole lot of dead people. We want dead kids. We want their genitalia cut off. We want their mommies and daddies poison poked. We don't want them to have any immune system. We don't want to have any gas. We don't want them to have any food. Let them eat bugs, maybe. And they'll be silent. They won't say a word. They will just basically sit back like Aaron did and say, Ah, shazam! Out came this load of BS. 
I follow that up with this story. Now, this one I've heard before. This is a second witness. This comes from Frank Bergman uh, and, and other sources, but ultimately it's from the World Economic Forum, one of the more evil entities, uh, high priests of the satanic gods of this world. They are calling on governments, big brothers everywhere, ready, to ban the general public, that's the peons, that's all of us, from growing their own food at home. No, you're not going to be allowed to grow food at home because, you ready? Just like you're breathing in and out does, you're eating and you're trying to grow food to feed that body that we don't want alive. It's, quote, causing climate change. Isn't that funny, folks? People have been around for a lot longer than the WEF. I, I can't help but think. Uh, Moses and Aaron, they were around here too. Were they causing climate change by breathing and eating and reproducing and honoring the Creator most of the time? According to the so-called experts, yeah, you know what that means? People who shovel bullshit down your throat. Behind a recent WEF study, researchers, sick, researchers, you know what they are? Let's be kind, let's be honest, and I'm bad-mouthing some ladies of the night here by uh, the parallels. These are whores. These are people that will sell themselves for fake science and tell you whatever it is you're paying them to say. They say they've discovered, shazam, out came this golden calf, that the carbon footprint of homegrown food is destroying the planet. As a result, the WEF and other globalist experts, climate zealots, they know better than you, they're the high priests of the satanic god of this world, they're now demanding that governments worldwide intervene and ban individuals from growing their own food in order to save the planet from global warming. And turns out that um, these um, uh, home-grown foods cause far greater carbon footprint than, oh, you know, your basic factory farm. Of course, the trouble is it's better food besides, and that's part of the problem, right? The research conducted by WEF funded horse at the University of Michigan was published in the journal Nature Cities. And it describes the wonderful methodology here in order to get what the results that they were paid to get were. And it says that um, all of these things that, that home gardeners use, raised beds, garden sheds, all of them, they, they constructed things that use a lot of carbon in their construction. They have turned something, folks, which is a fundamental building block of life. Let me be as, as clear as I can here. Real science, the kind that's based on actual evidence and, and observation and experiment, says we are what are called hydrocarbon-based creatures, carbon-based life forms. We breathe carbon. We are made from carbon. Carbon comes in. Carbon goes out. Carbon and carbon dioxide are about one of the most important elements, building blocks of life, right up there with another one you might have heard of, dihydrogen oxide. You've seen the studies, right? You tell people dihydrogen oxide can cause fires and it can drown people. Let's ban it. People are idiots. A lot of times they're just plain idiots. Okay, dihydrogen oxide is water. Right after water comes CO2. Turns out there's something called photosynthesis. These fake scientists, I don't think, know much about that. Photosynthesis is responsible for turning the uh, carbon dioxide that mammals like us exhale into sugars and complex carbohydrates and foods that... Mammals like us eat. It's part of a wonderful plan that the creator of the universe put together that recycles all these things, water and carbon dioxide and hydrocarbons, so that we can live and breathe and reproduce and worship him. They don't like that either. Without carbon dioxide, the planet dies. They're not going to tell you that. 
what they're going to try to do is to say, we want to control carbon dioxide because, yeah, guess what? You are carbon. This, uh, this uh, whore masquerading as a scientist, paper's author Jake Hawes, <laughs> said that uh, he and his teammates grouped urban agriculture sites into three categories, individual or family, and collective gardens, collectivist gardens, and larger commercial urban farms. And they found other factors that are hazardous and impact the uh, alleged carbon climate crisis. And uh, they advised that, oh, uh, get this, uh, veggies that are grown by uh, factory farms are five times, 5.8 times. Isn't that wonderful? They got decimal points in these bogus numbers. Um, better for the environment when they're left to the professionals. The people who know what chemicals to put on it and which genetically modified frankenfoods you should be eating. What it doesn't say is they didn't really look at the nutritional content or the uh, impact on your bodies. Oh, maybe they did. Because the ultimate goal here, remember, it's the same, is to kill people. They are zero times as nutritious, though. All right. There's, there's a little bit more here. Uh, they warned that people need to be limited when it comes to even keeping plants inside their homes, as well as growing food in their garden. Uh, climate alarmists are not about to let city dwellers have peace of mind. Greening indoor spaces, even having a philodendron in your living room, comes with an environmental cost. So Susan Pell, director of the U.S. Botanic Garden in Washington, said, oh, it's not quite as bad as they're saying. Gee, do you think? And um, she argues that members of the general public, well, they might not be allowed to buy plants, but once they have them, they should be allowed to grow potted plants at home. Isn't that nice of her? Isn't she a good little slave man? Oh, we just got to love people like that. She's willing to tell us that, well, we don't want you slaves to have nothing. As long as you can't eat it, we might let you grow it in a pot in your living room. If you're a good little slave and your socialist credit score is high. The agreement also seeks to ban other things that the slave masters don't want their slaves to have while they, while they live in their short, menial lives, like private cars and other restrictions on public freedoms in order to meet the WEF's utterly unscientific but utterly satanic net zero goals. Net zero means net zero you. And they talk about a coalition of cities. This is the big leftist cesspool cities. It's called the C40. And these are the top uh, communist 40 cities. And their climate leadership group, they've established an ambitious target to um, well, destroy people by the year 2030. Including, these are things that these cities and their communist leaders have pledged that their residents will do. They will comply, Achtung, with these mandatory rules. You ready? Here you go. By 2030. These peons, these slaves, will eat zero kilograms of meat. Zero. That's not even a burger from McDonald's every couple of months. Zero kilograms of dairy. Three new clothing items per person per year. Isn't that nice of them? And zero private vehicles. You already knew that. You wouldn't be able to charge it anyway. One short-haul return flight. Every three years per person, if you're a good little slave. Maybe you can go to Disneyland and worship some bisexual Mickey Mouse uh, dolls. They'll be AI by then. They'll probably push something down your throat. Said uh, Letitia James, animal agriculture accounts for 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And what a crock. All right, the, the, I, I mentioned that and I gave that more, more detail than it deserves just because... I'm trying to make as as clear of a point as I can. You know, compared to Aaron being told, uh, not even at gunpoint, just a mass of people, 
Make us a golden calf. All right, I will. This sounds pretty, well, extreme. Making a golden calf, that's pretty tame. These people are going to tell you that this new God demands you starve. The new God says you don't get to eat. You don't get to have meat. Uh, you, you know, your children, you're not going to have grandchildren because they're going to be neutered before they reach puberty. What are you going to do? You're going to stand there like Aaron and say, thank you, sir, may I have another? Oh, yeah, I'm feeling particularly good today. I'm thinking I won't even say anything about this. I'll just let you slam it down my throat. Here, why don't you rape me while you're at it? Hit me with an axe because that'll make me feel better, too. And people are putting up with this crap. The fake gods, folks. The fake gods here are demanding a lot more than this inanimate, damned golden calf ever did. It was a fake god. The best thing it ever did was come out of the fire unbidden, if we believe Aaron's report. Well, these fake gods now, they're producing fake history. They're rewriting stuff for folks. And their high priests are telling you, you're not going to be allowed to live. And people are keeping silent for it. Now, here's a story that I saw that I thought was interesting for a couple reasons. One, it comes from Matt Taibbi. And if you know Matt Taibbi, he used to write for Rolling Stone. Good journalist. I've always enjoyed his work. He's a, he is a reputable, honest journalist. He tells the truth. He's what a good journalist should be. He also unabashedly leans left. But Matt Taibbi is starting to realize that a lot of the people that lean the same way he did are exactly the kinds of folks that are pushing this crap. And so he's occasionally writing about something that um, needs to be said. This is from Matt Taibbi. It was on Zero Hedge. He says, MSNBC, Paul Krugman, and the other leftists are panicking over, and I'm quoting, white rural rage. Now, I'll read as much of this as I can stand, but it's uh, it's absolutely disgusting. But it does fit. Okay. Now, he says, this week we saw the following in undisguised class hatred. New York Times, MSNBC, they all slobbered over a new book reviewed by Paul Krugman, on the latest threat to their leftist... Remember the line from Wicked Witch of the West? Who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy all my beautiful wickedness? Yeah, over the latest threat to their beautiful wickedness. Mika Brzezinski, in one of the interviews for the leftist rags, uh, TV rags, said, I'll start with you, Mike, or Tom. Why are rural white voters a threat to democracy? Well, there's a loaded question. Answer! Fastball delivered University of Maryland professor, co-author of the just-released hit book, White Rural Rage, The Threat to American Democracy, Tom Schaller took a swing. He and Mika first complained that rural voters should be supporting Joe Biden, because he's one of them. He's a rural, albeit senile, given his roots, and as... Uh, um, Matt Taibbi said, you got to be pretty high to call Scranton rural, but whatever. Schaller then read off America's small-town charge sheet, and I'll quote, Rural whites, he said, are the most racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, conspiracist, anti-democratic, comma, and, quote, they don't believe in an independent press, what does that mean? MSNBC. And if you don't like it, we're going to kill you. Ha ha. And we're going to shut you up and we'll, we'll ban you from two. Come on. There's a point I'm making here by trying to read this without throwing up, folks. They don't believe in an independent press or free speech. Free speech. The kind of free speech that says, if you speak that, we'll kill you. We'll cut you off. We'll ban you. We'll shadow ban you. We'll cut you from gulag. And, quote, 
they're most likely to accept or excuse violence, he said. I suspect that may be the closest thing he got to the truth, because I have a suspicion some of these racists and uh, domestic terrorists that they're trying to set up for extinction just might begin to excuse violence against people like this. White rural rage, says um, Matt Taibbi, which I made the mistake of reading, <laughs> is a vicious manifesto in the anti-populist tradition. Okay, he gives some other examples of, of equally rabidly evil books. And he says, when rural voters in the late 1800s defied New York banking interests and demanded currency reform to allow farmers to escape from one of the original rigged games in finance, relentless propaganda ensued. Rural populists were depicted as dirty, bigoted, ignorant. They refused the expert wisdom of their betters. They represented a frantic challenge against every feature of our civilization. Now, as I'm reading this, this is the point that I want to make. Think about the the contrast here. Every feature of our civilization. What is a feature of our civilization today? Little boys that don't have a penis. Little girls that have their breasts cut off before they reach puberty. Uh, little boys and girls that are taught that there is no such thing as a god. That there is that your rights, you don't have any rights because you were evolved from a little lump of slime. You're never going to reproduce because we're not going to allow that. You're going to eat bugs because if you're a good little slave, that's all we're going to let you have. This, folks, is their civilization. And by the way, Scripture warned us about it. It says there'll come a time, and do you think we're there yet, when they'll call evil good and good evil. That is precisely, exactly what I will suggest we are seeing writ large right here. But matter of fact, they're calling something a god and saying, tomorrow will be a feast to Yah. They don't even know his name nowadays. That's how far gone they are. At least Aaron knew his name. These are your gods, O oh America. Everything we see in this Torah portion, if you look at it, is kind of a mini version of the evil that we're seeing writ even larger today. Okay, back to the contrast here. These, um, these people waged a shameful insurrection against law and natural honesty. Says Letitia James, says the people who are basically saying, if you don't toe the line, if you think you dare to run for president and we don't want you to, we're going to steal everything you have. We'll destroy your business. If you don't like it, we'll steal your buildings in New York. Last one out, turn out the lights. We are literally seeing a, uh, it's, it's a revolution that's been done. And what's the problem here? Just like Aaron, most Americans, I think a few are starting to figure it out, most Americans are still quietly saying, okay, give me your gold. Throw it in the fire. We'll see what comes out. Give me your kids. Throw them in the fire. We'll see what comes out. Let me poison poke them. We'll see what comes out. They are going silently to their graves and not saying a lick. A populist caricature of Judge Magazine, this is again Taibbi talking about the late 1800s, showed a violent, destructive idiot, a real-life Lenny, from the still-unwritten book of Mice and Men, standing over the defiled corpse of a civilized American. He prints a comic from uh, the late 1800s, a, a political cartoon. The theme is back, though, now. Condescension multiplied. We just had a pandemic that occurred graphically and demonstrated the social contributions of farmers, truckers, train operators, and other essential workers, the people whose very jobs were demonized during the crisis as murderous horse-paced eaters and insurrectionists. What have you done for me lately? 
you gave me the food, you, you moved the trucks, you moved the goods. What am I going to do to show you my regard for the wonderful sacrifices you made for America and the great democracy? Yeah, here, eat bugs or die. Their chief crimes? Protesting the lockdowns. Protesting the school closures that disproportionately affected him. Now, I've always thought the school closure thing was funny, folks. Because ironically, school closures was probably about the only good thing that came out of the poison poke epidemic and the lockdowns. Because at least a lot of Americans realize, you know, my kids are a hell of a lot better off, smarter, more educated now than they were when they were getting their dumbing down right there in the cesspools every day. So they may have complained at first, but ultimately they're saying, I don't think I want them to go back. So there was a little bit of good that came out of the evil, and that's one of the ways that uh, unintended consequences work, especially when you're dealing with the creator of the universe. Okay, and uh, they consumed foreign-supplied misinformation, Russia, 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 and so forth, that led them to refuse the appropriate political wisdom and expert advice, take your poison poke, that was offered to them. All right, then it's Nobel-winning columnist. What a scumbag. Paul Krugman, the New York Times, spent the last year telling ignorant middle America that its negative feelings about the economy are demonstrably false because Bidenflation is good for you. In spite of the fact what your bank accounts or uh, home valuations might say, quote, Bidenomics is still working very well. When white rural rage came out this week, he rushed to review it. And the intransigent refusal of yokels to accept his wisdom became his favorite hobby horse. All right. Uh, And the the story here goes on to say that this mystery of rural white rage is remarkable on a number of levels. Now, what's funny, this is Mika Brzezinski and all these leftists there sitting in their ivory towers and uh, demanding that the peons not be allowed to even eat cake, um, is because they don't get it. It is. It's 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 the reason why they beheaded Marie Antoinette. She didn't get it. Okay. Um, there's a whole bunch here about the decline of small town rural manufacturing. It's a complicated story. Imports pay a role. But here's the point. Why don't these rural yokels, when they, when their jobs go away and their manufacturing gets shut down, why don't they know what they should do? They should move to San Francisco. They can be right there on the street with the other homeless. They won't have the same benefits because they're not illegal. But hey. That's where the good jobs are. Why don't you go to San Francisco? Go to the cesspools. Yeah, some cities, they admit, have become unaffordable, so a lot of workers are reluctant to leave their families and communities. And the fact that globalization, technological change, fake money, and poison pokes have devastated small towns, made the urban keyboard warriors richer, and the rural voters can't afford to move to the cities, well, that's not that's not their fault. Okay. Krugman and company, um, they, they can't figure out why rural America is unaccountably hostile to them. All right. So anyway, there's there's a whole lot in here about how, how it is that these these uh, these leftists just shake their heads and they just can't figure out why people don't appreciate all the wonderful things that their communist masters and overlords are doing for them. There's a line in here about... Um, Maybe the thing to do if you're a if you're a leftist is you got to put on a Carhartt jacket, go down to somebody's farm and milk a cow. That way they'll know you're a good little master of their slaves. Show them you understand. Well, Donald Trump didn't do that, but what he did, and this is how they actually phrased it, they said Donald Trump gave rural voters a way to essentially give a big middle finger to Democrats, to people who live in the cities and don't live in flyover country. Morning Joe and all the folks there, they just look perplexed. <laughs> Wouldn't that? Um, work better? Why? How could it possibly work better than wearing a Carhartt jacket and milking a cow? It just didn't make sense. 
Yeah, as uh, Taibi says, educated America. Aren't you proud? We're in such good hands. These are the folks that brought you Joe Biden. These are the folks that think senility and that um, incompetence and not being able to do the job are the only requirements. These are the folks that think invasion is a good thing. Let's go back and uh, and kind of see if we can't put a couple pieces together. I'll admit, I, I read this, I look at this, and uh, it makes me angry. It does. It just makes me it it makes me infuriated. And I have a well. Wait a second. I, I I skipped over this part, but I think it's fair. Remember what the part about what happened when um, when Moshe has um, has these um, these words with the Creator. What does what Yahuwah say? These are stiff-necked folks. Let my wrath rax hot. He is basically going to smoke them. He's going to smite them right there. Do you think he's pissed? Well, yeah, Scripture makes it real clear he is. Then, here comes good old Moshe. He comes to the camp. He sees all the dancing, the goings on. He sees the golden calf. And it says, quote, Moses' anger waxed hot. He was so pissed, he threw those tablets written with the very finger of God, smashed them on the ground. I think he's a little peeved. He took the calf, he burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, and made him drink of it after he put it in water. And then you know what happened. These people didn't put up with it. And Moshe, by the way, had just finished interceding for them, or they'd all been dead anyway. And this is an example of part of the, the dichotomy, the, the interesting thing here, right? These are human beings. These are human beings that, like us, get angry when they see this stuff going on. Uh, like the creator of the universe who sees that they are violating, they knew or should have known, and they aren't acting in accord with the promises that they made. All that you has said we will do. No, the hell we will. We're going to do things he says don't do. And he better like it because tomorrow is a feast of Yah. Are we seeing the pattern? Folks, if we aren't at least a little bit like Moses, if we don't at least a little bit look at the Letitia James and Fannie Willis's and Joe Biden's and Hunter Biden's and Mitch McConnell's and other scumbags of the world and say, what the bloody blankety blanking hell are these people doing? Well, answer, we know. They, they want us dead. They don't give a damn about you or your children. They do, actually. They want you dead. They want to fund Monsatan and Pfizer, and Oxitec, and they love Bill Gates, and they love these people that want you to, That's what they have in common. That's why they're funding the invasion and bringing in the communist Chinese and MS-13 and Hamas and Hezbollah terrorists. And they're calling you a terrorist because you think you have rights that come from God that were once put in a document that they hate almost as much as they do the Bible. And how dare you even so much as admit you don't want to keep silent. You're supposed to keep silent, just like Aaron did. While they kill your kids, destroy your futures, take your stuff, and eat your dead bodies. Because that's going to be the kind of meat that they'll want. And, and if all this sounds gross, it should. If all this sounds over the top, it should. But you know what? It's been true, and it's been acknowledged, and it's been obvious for a long, long time before it started to even be undeniable by the likes of MSNBC, CNN, and the New York Times. Slowly it's coming out. Oh, we knew all along the poison poke was deadly. 
We knew all along that it caused modifications to your DNA. We knew all along that it was going to increase the risk of strokes and heart, heart attacks and myocarditis, that it was going to destroy your immune system. By the time you got to the third or fourth poison poke, hell, you weren't going to be able to fend off a common cold. Next, uh, next flu season probably kill you if the uh, strokes and the blood clots don't get you first. And people wonder, why is it that quote-unquote rural white America is getting a little PO'd? They should have been a long time ago. They put up with it, like Aaron did, for far too long. Do I know what's going to happen? Are they finally going to say we've had enough? You know one of the concerns that I've had is, just like what we saw in France, there comes a point at which people say, I don't give a damn. Off with every one of their stinking heads. If they were in the swamp, take their heads. I don't care. Those that started the reign of terror, including Robespierre, ended up victims of the guillotine. I hope, I pray that we don't see that level of bloodshed. But I also hope and pray that we don't stand by quietly and allow this evil to go without so much as a whimper. And then later on we say, well, I don't know what happened. Uh, Out came this AI that ate my kids, took my farm, and cut my, you know what, off. Before it killed me and ate me. Scripture puts it this way. Do not keep silent. We're supposed, to, um, we're supposed to actually complain to him. You who make mention of the name of Elohim, he says, pay attention. Watch and see what's going on. Now, I want to I mention one other thing, and it occurs to me that um, I can't let this go because this, this is one of my very, very favorite stories of the prophets in the book. And some of you already know, oh, Mark just loves this story. Here's the one he's going to turn to. First Kings chapter 18. It turns out this is the Haftorah for today. And uh, I'll admit it, I have a soft spot for uh, for Elijah, Eliyahu, okay? And and what's interesting is there's two stories in here, and my favorite is the second one, but I'll start with the first one. Because Elijah is told, you go see this nasty, evil king, one of the worst kings in all of Scripture, you know, the name Ahab. Present yourself to him. Okay, it happens. Ahab then sees Elijah when he has the uh, boldness to walk right in there. And Ahab says to him, listen to this, and think to yourself, could this be something the Biden Fuhrer would say to a prophet of Yah today? Is that you, O troubler of America? He said, O troubler of Israel. So here's the king. This is an anti-God king. This is one of the worst of the worst in all of Scripture. And he dares to say, the prophet of Yah, you are the troubler of Israel. Isn't that exactly what we're talking about? This is like Letitia James talking about democracy and how we're defending the rule of law. You troubler of America. He answered, I'm not the one that's troubled Israel. You, you and your father's house have, in that you have, listen to this, forsaken the commandments of Yahuwah and have followed after these fake gods, the Baals. The Baal family. That sounds like, uh, you know, they could be a contender for the Democrat nomination when the Biden fewer steps down. Joe Baal, Hunter Baal. Okay, now therefore, you gather up all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at your wife Jezebel's table. So he basically issues a a commandment to the king who does it. He sent for all of the prophets, got them together on Mount Carmel. He sent for all the children of Israel too. They all got, they're going to have a big show. And Elijah says to all the people, now this is one of my favorite lines, folks, from a prophet in all of his word. Eliyahu looks at the folks and he says, you know what? How long are you going to falter between two opinions? 
Make up your minds, in other words. My dad used to say, um, take a dump, right, or get off the pot. Don't just sit there. How long will you falter between two opinions? If Yahuwah is God, well, then serve him. But if it's Baal, follow after him. Guess what? Ready? You know what the people said? You you do if you've read the story. They were quiet, just like Aaron. Not a word. Not a peep. They sat there just like Americans today who have been silenced by Google. Elijah said to the people, I'm alone left, a prophet of, a, of Yahuwah, but you got 450 prophets of Baal right here. So let's just have ourselves a little contest. Uh, Y'all choose two bulls. And um, let us choose one bull for uh, ourselves, and then uh, they'll get one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, put no fire under it. I'll prepare the other bull, and I'll lay it on the wood, and I'll put no fire under it, and we'll see what happens. You, you priests of Baal, you call on the name of your gods, and I'll call on the name, not of the Lord, folks. He said the real name. He said, I'll call on the name of Yahuwah. And the Elohim who answers by fire, yep, he is God. He is El. People said, okay, that sounds good. It is well spoken. Now, Elijah then turned to the prophets of Baal, and he said, y'all pick one bull for yourselves, present it, for you are uh, many, there's a whole lot of you, right? I'm going to give you a first shot at it. You call on, <coughs> you call on the name of your God, but don't put any fire under it. So they did. They took the bull which was given them. They prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. Pretty soon it comes up on noon. And this is another one of those places where I just love the prophet's sense of humor. And by the way, folks, most Bibles will soft-pedal this. If you actually look at the original Hebrew and some of the metaphors, uh, he was a little bit potty-mouthed. He was mocking them in no uncertain terms. Elijah mocked, well, it says that. Elijah mocked them, and he said, Hey, come on, cry louder, because he's a god, right? Maybe he's out meditating. Maybe he's taking a whiz. Maybe he's on a, a journey, or he's busy. Maybe he's sleeping, and you need to wake him up. So they cried loud. They cut themselves, just like kids that are taught to do that in modern cesspools do. They cut themselves with knives and lances. Blood gushed out all over the place. And finally, when midday was passed, they prophesied till the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But no one answered. There was no voice. No one paid any attention. Then Elijah, Eliyahu, says to all the people, Come near to me. They all came near. He repaired the altar of Yehoah, which had been broken down. Isn't that an interesting statement? Kind of like, again, America today. Elijah then took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Yaakov, to whom the word of Yahuwah had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then, with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahuwah. He made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. Big hole, in other words. Big trench. He put wood in order, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and said, Fill, fill up four water pots with water. Pour that on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He's going to soak the wood. Wouldn't we think that would make it harder to light? Yeah, but that's okay. We're dealing with the one true Elohim here. Then he said, do it again. Huh? It was bad enough before. No, do it again. They did. Did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time. So they did, indeed, do it a third time. The water ran all over the place, filled the altar, filled the trench with water. Everything's wet. The wood's all wet. So it came to pass, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Eliyahu the prophet Notice how he's being referred to now. Eliyahu the prophet came near and he said, 
Yahuwah Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are El in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your word. Hear me, O Yahuwah, hear me, that this people may know Ki you, that you, not Ki Ani in this case, it's that you are Yahuwah Eloheka, that you have turned their hearts Back to you again. These are the people, folks, who half a day earlier were quiet like bumps on a log. Let them know. Let them see. Let them hear. Turn their hearts back to you. Then the fire of Yahuwah fell, and it consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up all the water that was in the trench. Dramatic. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahuwah, whoa, Yahuwah, he is Elohim. Yahuwah, he is Elohim. And Elijah said to them, Oh, let's have mercy on these prophets of Baal. Let's have mercy on these guys who have been basically committing your sons and daughters. No, that's not what he said. Now, this is a man of Yah, right? What does he say? Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let a damned one of them. Okay, I added that. Don't let a single one of them escape. They seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Folks, the man of El, at the hand of the people who have just been shown what the one true creator of the universe is capable of and who he is and have had their hearts turned back to him, executed every single damned one of those 450 fake priests of Baal. And by the way, then he says to the king, Ahab, go up, eat and drink, because there's a sound of an abundance of rain. And guess what? Right? Remember this, uh, this long time of drought? Go ahead, look out to the east. Nothing there. He said it seven times. Go again, look. Seventh time, he said, there's a little cloud out there, small as a man's hand, rising up out of the sea. Get your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. All right, sky became black with clouds and wind, there was heavy rain. Ahab rode away and went to Jezebel. Then the hand of Yahuwah came upon Eliyahu, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So this is one of those great stories, right? I, I love the story. It is about a, um, a prophet of the one true El versus 450-plus of the prophets, the fake priests, the liars, the whores of their day to a fake god. And I ask, is it possible that there's any parallel here? I guess the biggest parallel, folks, is that we don't have a uh, we don't have a Yel- an Eliyahu. We don't have anybody that's even, for the most part, with uh, with rare exceptions, right? Should include us. Should include every one of us who is willing to stand up and say, Yahuwah, He is El. Yahuwah, He is El. As Joshua put it, as for me and my house, we will serve Yod Hey Vav Hey Yahuwah and Him alone. We're not hearing a lot of that. We're getting a lot more of the silent treatment of Aaron. Oh, yeah, bring me the gold. I'll take care of it. It should not be so. Offer up your kids. It should not be so. Let them have your houses. Let them bring in their alien invaders. Let them do whatever they want to you, because you're a slave, right? You don't have anything worth protecting. You don't serve any god worth dying for, or even speaking up for, or do we? Elkanah, he's a jealous El. 
I've said it, and I know, I hope at this point, that the reason for some of the language, because, by the way, this is exactly the kind of thing that the prophet, the one true prophet of the time here in this story, Eliyahu spoke, he he made fun of, he um, mocked the fake gods. We should do no less. We have a whole bunch of priests of Baal, folks. A lot more than 450 of them, sadly. Infesting the swamp, killing children, raping, stealing, murdering, selling people into slavery, destroying their futures, wanting to feed them bugs or nothing at all, destroying their ability to have energy. You name it. If it's evil, they are doing it. And they're telling you it's good for you. And people are so stupid, so dumbed down. They sit there and say, mm-hmm, I guess it's okay. I'll say it again, it should not be so. These people, remember, there were a whole lot of people that were standing there around the golden calf. I suspect most of them, right? Most of them survived. When the time came and the uh, the Levites went out and started slaying most of them just stood by. Now, they, they, they later, we know what happened to them, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. They were dead men walking. And here we are. They knew or should have known, but they kept silent. And today we have something, again, lots of some things, all of which make the golden calf look tame. The vax, the CO2, the carbon dioxide BS, the climate change BS. Oh, yeah, your SUV's causing it. No, it's not. Your breathing is causing it. No, it's not. Cow farts, come on. Once upon a time, people laughed at cow farts. Now it gets subsidized, and the whores preach it to you and take away your stuff because of it. CBDCs, we got a land that's jonesing for judgment. Why did Aaron go along? Why are we going along? I guess the point is the following. I uh, I can understand why people would want to excuse Aaron for the exact kind of behavior that the whore church has been encouraging people to do for all of our lives. Now, am I excusing the priests of, uh, of another god in the whore church? That one's a tougher one, right? I know that there are probably some who are uh, who are saying, oh, get your Christmas trees, get your bunnies, get your eggs. Come on down here on Sun God Day. Because <sighs> we serve Jesus. Do you really? Arguably. Uh, arguably, at best, it's another Jesus whom we've not preached. I, uh, I will, with that, uh, let's see, I'll ask as I'm, as I'm turning to one other thing here. Do we have any comments or questions? Or, uh, or, yeah, mostly questions at this point. Give me some ones on the screen or, or some QQQs if you do. If not, I've got one more thing I want to mention here. This is, a, this is the, uh, the Brit Hadashah reading from today. It's another one that I debated whether to mention or not, uh, simply because it has been often so twisted that people basically just, they don't get it. But I hope that after a, um, a fairly lengthy introduction and, and looking at the actual Torah portion, maybe it'll make more sense. This is chapter 3 of the second letter to the people in Corinth. And um, <clears throat> Paul's writing, and he says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Uh, why are we writing this? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Okay, You, in fact, are the epistle. That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, not with ink, but by the spirit of the living Elohim. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of fresh, flesh. That is, the heart. And then he says this, down in the letter somewhere, um, this is not of the letter, but of the Spirit, because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is another one of those problematic texts, and it's a little bit like the indictment, right? The handwriting of the indictment against us that is nailed to the execution stake, the cross. It's not the law itself. It's not the law that kills folks. It is the fact that we are deserving of death in accord with his written instruction. Isn't that exactly what the people were figuring out as they danced around the golden calf and Moses came down and broke those tablets and his wrath waxed hot? Y'all are deserving to die. As a matter of fact, if I hadn't interceded for you, you'd have been dead before I got down here. Every damned one of you. How's that? The letter kills, but the Ruach gives life. By the letter of what they knew or should have known, they were dead men walking and women already. Therefore, we have hope. And he then talks about Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel didn't have to look upon those beams that were shining out of him because it kind of scared them. It says this in some English renderings. They couldn't look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Now, here's the line that I have trouble with, and I hope we can read in context and understand. For their minds were blinded. Well, that part's obvious. They were deserving of death. These are the same folks who just finished saying, let's make a golden calf. We don't know what happened to this guy Moshe. How's that for being blinded? By the way, what does Paul say? There'll be a great delusion. Great falling away. What does Isaiah say? Uh, Because you chose that in which I do not delight, I will choose your delusions for you. Talk about being blinded. When the creator of the universe blinds somebody, they are blind indeed. All right, their minds were blinded. Because until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading. Now, I'm going to fix this word because that's not what it says. It says the Old Testament in some English versions. It's the Tanakh. It's the written scriptures that it's really talking about, because that's what they had. Because the veil is taken away by the Messiah. The veil is taken away by the Messiah. What was it Messiah did on the road to Emmaus, right? He explained to them how everything in Scripture was pointing to him. There was a veil. Do we have a problem with understanding what Paul is saying, or do we have a problem with understanding what the whole church says he said instead of what he actually wrote? Listen to this. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Why? It's because that stuff from Moses. It's, that's bad stuff. No, it's not. It's because people do, they have eyes but do not see. They have ears but they hear not. Nevertheless, he says, this is important, when one turns to, no, not the Lord, when one turns to Yahuwah, the veil is taken away. Now, Yahuwah is the Ruach. And where the Ruach of Yahuwah is... There is liberty. Here's the question I want to ask. Their minds were blinded. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the people that saw Moses with the beams coming from his face. Their minds were blinded. That same veil remains there. They couldn't look steadily at the end of what was passing away. What was passing away? Oh, I know what the whore church will tell me. The law! The, that's it! That's it! Yeah, yeah, pick me, pick me! The law! That good old bad stuff! That The law that we hate so much! That's supposed to be written on our hearts, but it's not. That when the new covenant comes, we won't even have to teach one another, our brothers and our neighbors, because we'll all know it, from the least of us to the greatest. That's it! The lost! No! What was passing away, folks? They were! They were dead men walking! Every single one of them was going to die in the wilderness in the next 40, 38 years. Every one of them, 
above the age of 20. What's Paul saying? They couldn't look steadily at the end of what was passing away. It was them. What was passing away was that which was already deserving of death and wasn't even finished yet. They're going to get one more chance. They're going to take that first recorded vote, and that'll be the icing on the cake, or the end of the icing on the dead bodies that are still animated for a few more years. The point again, what are we seeing? We read this crap, and it's not, it, it's not that it's wrong what Paul wrote. It's the crap that we've been told about it that turns it on its head. It's kind of like what we're being told about climate change. Is there climate change? You bet. The sun does it. Uh, what else can do it? Well, how about geoengineering and massive seeding of clouds and massing uh, attempts to move the jet stream? Why? Well, because if you want to convince people that the climate is getting warmer when, in fact, the real threat is it's going to cool off, growing season is going to be shorter, you're going to starve to death, how better than to move things around and show them temperature extremes, get some people to freeze and some people to flood and other people to, to bake to death, because the extremes will mask the averages. It's real simple math, but if people don't know math and they don't know real science and they believe the BS that they've been fed, well, by the time they figure it out, it's too late. They're already frozen to death. So it's a similar thing, in other words. Uh, we're again seeing people being fed the lie and not being able to discern because what? They have no love of the truth. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, said Hosea, I will reject you from being priest for me. It's, well, I'm looking at um, chapter 4. Let me read just one more little bit. Um, if our gospel, if our truth, he says, this is Paul continuing in chapter 4, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. You see, isn't that what we're just talking about? It's veiled to those who are perishing. They have eyes, but do not see. Whose minds, it says, the Elohim of this age, the God of this age, has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of the risen Messiah, who is in fact the image of Elohim, should shine on them. We're not preaching ourselves. He says we're preaching the, the living Torah-made flesh, the son of Elohim. And that's the key. Over and over again, it boils down to this. Are we going to sit by silently? Am I condemning uh, Aaron? Again, the Bible simply reports to us what is true. They made the calf which Aaron made. Aaron is culpable. He stood by. He said, bring me your gold. When they, in fact, came to him and said, make us a god. He did not object. At least he didn't object enough that he failed to go along with it. How about us today? Well, we got no room to brag, right? Because most of us have been going along to get along. We are standing silently by. While our children are being destroyed, they're being dumbed down, they're being told that you're sacks of nothing, bits of protoplasm evolving from the primordial muck, not worth anything, not created in the image of a God who doesn't exist anyway, might as well just cut yourselves, cut off your genitalia, and die. Because that's what we've got ready for you. Hell, you'll be lucky if you even get bugs to eat. No wonder they cut themselves. No wonder they think there's no hope. No wonder we live in a nation where ugliness is venerated and people can't tell the difference between lies and truth because they have replaced bitter for sweet, calling evil good and good evil. Ain't nothing new under the sun. It's just that what's happening here makes the golden calf, again, look tame by comparison. And the message? Speak up. 
Speak the truth boldly. Do not keep silent. Don't let them do what they intend to do. If God be God, serve Him. But if it's Baal, serve Him. But for crying out loud, make up your minds. I think there's another verse that you might have heard about too. You know, I wish that you were hot or cold. Because if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. And this is precisely what we are seeing. Don't be lukewarm, folks. There's plenty of that around. Study to show yourself approved. When the time comes, speak. Remember, we got this shofar for a reason, too. We can blow it. There is a sword coming upon the land. We have a mission. We have an obligation to speak, to give our witness, our testimony. Ultimately, nope, I can't save people who refuse to be saved. Elijah didn't either, if you think about it. What did he do? He basically set up a test. He walked in obedience to the Creator, and he showed them, he demonstrated to them what it was that the Creator of the universe had for them, and therefore what they needed to do about it. And their hearts were turned. Okay, He can do that. And he did that, again, by walking in obedience to the Creator. And may it be so for us as well. And may Yahuwah bless each and every one of us and guide us. So let's um, let's close with prayer. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples and the things in Scripture, both positive and negative, that have brought us to the place where we are today, that have shown us what it is that we need to be aware of and understand, things that we knew or should have known, or things that we need to reemphasize. You've set them off for us in your text, in your word. You've set them off with stories, with examples with the acts of the apostles and of the prophets. We pray, too, that we would be able to set them off in our hearts and our minds when the time comes that we, too, would act on the things that you have shown us so that we would, in fact, speak your truth boldly when we need to, blow your shofar when we need to, and help us to know now that uh, we're at the time when we need to be doing these things. Guide us. Give us strength to be strong and of good courage, kazak, knowing that there are challenges, that it's not going to be easy, but that we have what we need from you, and that when we are walking in your word, as was Eliyahu, you are faithful and true. You will not only protect us, you will do those things that you have said. Yeshua promised that even greater things than those we will do. It's a, um, it's a sobering thought, Father. But it's one that we need to be ready for. Give us strength. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to hear the still small voice and to walk in obedience and to know that we will do those things, that we will do them and that people's hearts will be turned, returned to you. Guide us in all that lies ahead. Help us to be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming and to be found doing your work when you return. And all of this we ask in your set-apart name, for you are our King, our Savior, our Redeemer our one true king, master, husband, savior. You are Yahuwah Zedeknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zevuot, El Kanah, and our all-sufficient El Shaddai. And we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. Uh, let's, uh, let's close with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak in turn to Aharon and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, Ivarekaka Yehovarishmareka Yaer Yehov Hanavaleka Vihuneka 
May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen.